Hello and welcome back to another episode of the China Path podcast. James Scullin here from the Australia-China Business Council. On this episode, I sit down with a true legend of Australia-China relations. Michelle Garno is one of the most respected and recognised restaurateurs in Asia and was described by Time magazine as an industry celebrity as well as the pioneer of China's fashionable dining scene. With over 30 years experience covering every facet of the service industry from dishwashing to cooking, waiting tables to bartending and marketing to management, Michelle founded M at the Fringe in Hong Kong in 1989, M on the Bund in Shanghai in 1999 and Capital M in Beijing in 2009 each becoming an icon in its city. I chat to Michelle about the story behind each of her restaurants, each location's challenges and peculiarities, as well as how each city's changed over her more than three decades working in China. We also discuss Michelle's philanthropy work, such as establishing the Shanghai Literary Festival, her role on the board with the Australian Global Network Advance, and leading the female empowering mentor walks operating all over the world. Michelle truly has a lot of great stories to share, and I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm joined on the podcast with restaurateur and one of the pioneers of China's fashionable dining scene, Michelle Garneau. Um, Michelle, how did you first begin your China restaurateur journey? Mm, that's a pretty big question. In I'll try and keep it short. In essence, I arrived in Hong Kong as a tourist to get a visa to go to China in 1984. I ended up getting a job in Hong Kong cooking. I did that for a few years. I opened a restaurant in Hong Kong in 1989 called Emma at the Fringe. And like many, when something is very successful very quickly, everybody is telling you, you know, oh my goodness, you should be going, you know, moving to the moon and you should be, you know, taking over the whole restaurant world right. all over the planet. Um, of course, you haven't got a clue what you're doing, more than likely. But so I started to go and look at other places um, in the region, but I didn't I wasn't really very enthusiastic about it, to be honest, and, and I found it fairly daunting, and rightly so. I mean, I think actually with hindsight, I was right, right to find it daunting because doing something in a new market is daunting. Mm. But I knew China quite well. I went to Shanghai the first time in 1985, so, and I'd been back quite a few times, so I knew it quite well. Um, and then in the mid-'90s, Bruno, who used to work with me, he uh, had never been to Shanghai and we were doing um, a protest against the French um, testing nuclear weapons. Okay. And so we were just exhausted and I'd organised hotels and everybody in Hong Kong to protest against the French. So I was utterly worn out. And Bruno and I did a quick trip up to Shanghai and he said, we should open a restaurant here. And I said, I think you're out of your mind. And he said, no, I think it'd be great fun. So that was in 1995. Okay. And um, a year later, I was with a friend who was organising a big party at the Peace Hotel. And I was there with him and um, I had this bright idea to ask the Peace Hotel manager if I could come and do a pop-up at the Peace Hotel, um, which sort of sounds very groovy, but it was not that uncommon in those days. Okay. You know, there used to be sort of like Swiss cheese week or something like that in hotels. So this, you know, and I'd been asked before if I'd go and sort of, you know, we'd do a, a week in a restaurant, in a hotel somewhere. 
Yeah. Anyway, not in China, but that was my idea. So he said uh, yes, and that's a very funny story about having to cook and carry things up there. And it's another story. But um, he said yes, and um, we did in uh, December that year. We did two weeks of essentially at the Peace Hotel. Um, so we, it was called Emma at the Peace and it had a very cute postcard, but in turn we called it Emma the Fringe Goes to Pieces. Okay. It was an absolute <laughs> nightmare. But um, leading on from that, I think actually that's how we ended up in China. And, I'll, you know, going back, we, I realised that there was definitely a market. Um, you know, the place, this thing at the Peace Hotel, which was really hard to get to at the time. People today can't imagine that in Shanghai. It took like two hours to get from the Hilton Hotel, which is in sort of, you know, near the old, the former French concession, yep. down to the Bund because there were no highways, no right, super okay. highways. It took ages. Yeah. So we had somebody who was working with us and we didn't, the Peace Hotel didn't make bread at the time. So she would go, she was a chef's girlfriend, she would go to the Peace Hotel, to the Hilton Hotel and pick up the bread every day. And it took her most of the day to get to the Hilton Hotel right. and back again. There was also then, I think one, there's probably line one, I mean there would have been, there was probably line one or line two. I mean now I think there are, I don't know, maybe 20 metro lines, but then there were two. There was line one and line two. There would have been less traffic, though, back then? There was less traffic, but there was a bit of traffic in okay. the mid-90s and there were no roads. Yeah. And the roads had basically been, you know, done in the 30s and 40s, really. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so what was the international um, restaurant scene like back in the 80s in, uh, in, in was, Hong Kong? Well, I mean, it was sort of interesting in a funny sort of way. Um, you know, I don't want to be dismissive with anybody. I mean, there were remarkable, fantastic five-star restaurants, you know, waiters with white gloves and you couldn't look sideways at a, an ashtray. I mean, everybody smoked in those days and you couldn't... And somebody would be flicking a lighter in your face, you know. Yeah. Sort of, <laughs> you just had so much service. And the service was legendary. I mean, the, the hotel people used to boast that they would have, I think, Mandarin and Peninsula, I think they had two staff for every customer. Okay. So that they, you know, they had whatever, 500 rooms, so that was, you know, 1,000 oh. customers, they had 2,000 staff sort of thing. Yeah. Peace Hotel was like that when we were there too, but they were 900 staff, 1,800 staff, I think. Oh, my God, it was crazy. But when I came to Hong Kong, there were very good five-star restaurants, hotels, very old-fashioned Chinese restaurants, which actually haven't really changed all that much, mm. honestly. There were a few fashionable Chinese restaurants, much sort of more international. But it was really at a time that I think a lot of people in Hong Kong were feeling very nervous, and it was 84. So in 82, the the treaty had been, you know, the handover, the agreement had been made for 97. So a lot of people were leaving, and mm. many went to Australia and went to Canada. Mm. Um, and a lot of cooks left. So there was actually, you know, the, the talk at the time was that all the best cooks, you know, have moved to Los Angeles or Vancouver or somewhere. Yeah. The Chinese cooks. Um, and then there was a sort of pub scene. You know, it was very much British. It was a British colony. Yeah. So, you know, the food was pretty ordinary. 
and it was pretty much pub scene. I remember when I first I came and I was I was you know I'd been cooking for a couple of years already, and I was going around and asking people I want to get a job as a cook, and everybody was saying you know you should get a job as a waitress. And one guy said to me, go and work in one shite and topless places, you'll make a fortune. <laughs> okay. I was like, mm, thanks very much, but you know I don't really think that's my sort of scene. Yeah. Um, so I think there were there were pubs and there were you know, Wan Chai dives and there were Chinese restaurants but there was no coffee and there was an endless talk about where, you know, where do you find good coffee, everybody. But there was a, it was a funny scene really. There weren't that many independent young people. There weren't that many people like me. Okay. A lot of people were, had come as sort of British expats and they come with the bank or, you know, the bank. I remember there was a thing called the bank. I said, what's the bank? And everybody said, what? What do you mean, what's the bank? Hong Kong Shanghai Bank, of course, is the bank. I was like, right. oh, yeah, of course, yeah. So it was a funny place in the 80s, but it was also, um, it was also like, I think a place that was a bit of the end of the era. I mean, if you talk to people now who were, you know, around at that time, it was wild. Mm. You know, it was the nightclubs and tons of money. I used to have customers. I was cooking. I ended up working in a restaurant called 97. I had no idea what it meant at the time. But I was cooking, um, you know, in an open... I was cooking in a tiny little restaurant in an open kitchen... And I used to have customers send me bottles of, like, Dom Perignon. And, you know, oh, here you go, Michelle. How about a bottle of champagne for you? Like, God, I don't know how I did anything. But so it was very extravagant. There was a lot of money around. Right. Yeah. But it was very expat-y. It was not not very well integrated. And I hardly had any Chinese friends. And and so did you you have a clientele in mind when you opened up M on the Fringe? Did you try and... Um, draw in a lot of those affluent uh, local Hong Kong citizens or... or, or, Yeah, well, I mean, that was really what Hong Kong was at the time. I mean, I knew that by the time... I'd already been here five years when Mm. I opened. So I knew and I'd worked in restaurants and I'd run um, the front of house of 97 and turned it around from being pretty divey into a good restaurant. So I sort of knew a lot of people. Okay. And by then I knew actually quite a lot of Chinese people as well, thank heavens. Um, you know, when I opened and I'd done catering and I'd cooked for, you know, I'd, I'd cooked for the big banks and the advertising people and, you know, so I knew a lot of people. And I think that when we opened in the Fringe, first of all, the building itself was gorgeous, built in 1913. The, the design was fantastic, done by a local guy who... Um, you know, a Cantonese, actually Eurasian, um, but super, super talented. Um, and it was an independent building. It had its own little staircase. And this, I mean, most restaurants in Hong Kong were on the fifth floor of an office building or, okay. you know, so it had a sort of authenticity, which for me was really important. Mm. And I think that we were exactly the right thing at the right time and in the right place with the right clientele. So Hong Kong's obviously changed so much since then. Um, what do you miss about that time? Like, what what did Hong Kong have then in the eighties that it doesn't have now? I think. I mean, I, I don't know if people would say this. I mean, I I come from Melbourne, but I look at Melbourne now, and 
people say to me, Melbourne's great. And I say, believe me, it wasn't in the 70s. Right, yeah. You know, it was boring. It just wasn't really such an interesting place. And now, yeah, it is. It's fantastic. So I think many, I think most of the world has changed. I mean, populations have grown and and it's so, so much more international everywhere. You know, flights are much cheaper. Mm. So, but I think actually in Hong Kong, you sort of knew everybody. You know, if you were in the nucleus, there wasn't such a big scene. So because you were in the nucleus of a scene, you sort of knew everybody. Okay, yeah. And that, of course, is really different now. Mm. I mean, one, because I'm older, of course, you know, I can't be bothered going out all the time. But I think also there's so many scenes now. Right, And there's so many restaurants that I think to do something really off the charts today, which is what we were considered like totally off the charts, um... I think it's much harder to do. Okay. So, in 1999, when you opened up M on the Bund in Shanghai, was was Shanghai the only feasible option for a mainland China restaurant at that yeah, time for you? Yeah, I'd say it's probably, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. How was it that a foreigner could get access to the, the famous Nissan building in, in Shanghai? Was there any pushback well, about it having Well, it wasn't so famous then, believe me. Okay. Um, <laughs> you know, what is quite interesting was that most of the most of the bund was actually empty at that time. Right. So the okay. whole, I mean, what is now the stretch of it, which has been most of the building, actually nearly every building has been restored. Is there anything not? There was nothing restored. There was a lot of confusion about what the bund was going to be. Okay. You know, what was it? Was it going to be a tourist destination? I mean, there were so many plans, you know, over the years that I heard. Um and, you know, was it going to be the Champs-Élysées and was it going to be, you know, I mean, Nanjing Road was already the main shopping road, but Nanjing Road sort of pretty local where Huahai Road is, you know, really the more fancy one. And the yeah. fancy people in Shanghai went to Huahai Road, not yeah. Nanjing Road was for the provincial tourists sort of thing, for shopping. So, and actually it's interesting, you know, the Bund hasn't worked for shopping. It doesn't really work sort of for high-end shopping. Um, but... I think, I mean, it was pretty empty. So I was looking, I'd been down at the Peace Hotel in 96 and decided that no, it was too difficult to get to the Bund and nobody would go there. And it was very different, you know. Everybody said, it'll never work on the Bund, you know. You're crazy to go to the Bund. Yeah. But actually, you know, you realised when you went there that there's just, there was nothing like it because... You know, when I saw that building and I went in... So, a company had taken over that building and they were beginning to renovate it and it was such a beautiful building inside and they pulled it all apart. Well, mostly mm. they pulled it all apart. Um, now, of course, they're trying to keep interior architecture. They're understanding that interior architecture is as important as exterior right. architecture. Sadly, that wasn't the case in the 90s. It's okay. really sad because I was screaming at anybody I could find, saying, Tell us, stop, stop pulling everything down, you know. And like, no, no, we have to pull it all down and make it all beautiful. So, so, so would you say back then the, the Shanghai city government, like, maybe wasn't savvy enough to, to realise the opportunity of using the Bund for, for commercial purposes? Oh, no, purposes. I think that they knew because actually, it, you know, I remember somebody saying to me in the 90s, you know, like not long before, we'd, we'd just, we signed a lease in 1998 and I remember somebody saying to me, you know that there are like, oh, I don't know, half a million tourists a day walking on the Bund? I said, yeah, there might be and not one of them is our customer. Right. You know, so 
the whole Bund area and the look and it had the lights, you know, we used to call it sort of smoke and mirrors and I think then the lights were all coloured. Okay. They were purple and gold or something. Yeah. Um, but the the whole um, sort of lighting up and the grandeur of the Bund was there for everyone to see but there was nothing inside. But people didn't know there was nothing inside those buildings. Okay. And there was really very little. So the Peace Hotel was pretty run down. Um, I mean, I knew that. I'd worked there. Yeah. Um, the, the, Hong, the old bank, which is now the Shanghai Pudong Development Bank, had not been restored. They were – that was just beginning to happen. Um, the customs house was there, but you didn't have access. And most of the other buildings were empty, so the outside of them had lights and during the daytime it all looked pretty – Pretty tatty. Okay. Pretty sad, really. Thinking about the essentials of opening up M on the Bund in Shanghai, what was what was different about it compared to Hong Kong in terms of sourcing food or oh, licenses it was or different. regulations? Oh, it was completely different. Was, so was it more difficult? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was much more difficult. But I think it was much more difficult because there wasn't much structure in place. Okay. You know. So and and. I mean, that's it's perfectly clear that there were hygiene licences and actually the Chinese are very strict. Mm. You know, you have to have a separate cold larder, a separate pastry, double doors with sinks in between the cold larder and, you know, it's really, really strict. It's much more strict than Hong Kong and much more strict than Australia. Yeah, even back in the 90s. Yep, okay. absolutely. Um, they were not, you know, they were not quite as strict but... You know, they were still pretty strict. And, of course, the fire regulations were also very strict. They had to be in cities where, you know, there was so much bad wiring. So things... But because there weren't, weren't tons of regulations written down, it, a lot of, often they didn't really know what to do. I'd say, what do we do about this? And they'd mm. say, ooh. Okay. You know, and the government people were really... The local district government people, they were really helpful and they tried to help us. Um, but there were other things that were difficult. I mean, we... There were funny things that you couldn't get. I mean, there were already five-star hotels in Shanghai, so of course you could get, you know, get a lot. You know, meat. You know, the, there was big Australian meat company there. We used actually in '96, and when we first opened, mm. run by a friend. There was plenty of wine. Um, there was very good. There was a crazy American guy who grew salad stuff, which was really, really good. Um, he was really strange. But anyway, the salad was really good and the herbs and the spices and all of that. Those herbs, yeah. And that was rare to, 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 to yeah, have Yeah, because the Chinese don't really eat raw food. Okay. Um, more so now, but they didn't – it's not really a part. Shanghainese cuisine is very different to Cantonese cuisine. Mm. The Cantonese just don't eat raw food, which is sensible where the water was not clean. Yeah, yeah? okay. Um, in Shanghai, there's quite a lot of cold dishes. So – you know, there was plenty. There were funny things that you couldn't get, like you couldn't get um, sugar crystals. And I remember sort of, you know, always having a suitcase full of things I'd have to carry in. Okay. Vanilla beans and cream was quite hard to get. Not that I could carry in cream, but you know, butter and cream, and there was not much cheese. And and so yeah. you'd rely a lot on Hong Kong. For those hard there sauce. was a supplier in Hong Kong and quite a lot of suppliers in Hong Kong used to get things across the border. But I don't know that it was completely 
you know, above board. Yeah. And now it's impossible. Okay. But now you can get everything. You just got to pay for it. Yeah. So Bob Hawke passed away a few yeah. weeks ago and I yeah. saw on Twitter someone was sharing a video of him, of him singing. singing Waltzing Matilda at Em on the Bund. <laughs> so was that, was that a rare occasion or was that something that he would often do whenever he was in town? Uh, no. <laughs> I don't think it happened all the time. <laughs> um, it was... Yeah, no, he came a few times to the restaurant. He, he was remarkable. He had a lot of he did a lot of stuff with the advancement of China and also the opportunities in Australia, you know, for Australia and China. Yeah. Um, I, that dinner was actually um, the first event that we did for Advance. So Advance is actually I'm on the board of Advance, and it's got nothing to do with anything political. Yeah. It is a um, global network of um, of expat and repat Australians. So it's basically a global network of Australians and it's really the only one. It, 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 it's a sort of uh, an umbrella organisation that is not just an, you know, I mean, I don't say just an Auscham, but, you know, Auscham's very much a business community in a particular place. Yeah. So this is a more global organisation. And that was the first one. It was a big, big dinner oh, right. that okay. we did for Advance. It was maybe in, I don't know, 2000 and... Ten, maybe eight or nine or ten. Okay. I can't really remember. Yeah. But he was singing, and my God, he could. He truly couldn't sing, but he truly didn't care. So has the Emma on the Bund been a been a rite of passage for for other Australian dignitaries and yeah, and, and we've prime had ministers? every prime minister. We've had all of them. Okay. There. Yeah, yeah, we have. And actually, but I mean, interest. This says a lot about the current relationship with Australia and. And China is that there have hardly been any ministerial visits for the last mm. couple of years. Yeah. And, you know, we used to have, I can't tell you how many, you know, maybe three a month. Okay. I remember the Victorian commissioner guy saying to me, oh, God, you know, in June we've got 14 visits before the end of the year yeah. from ministerial visits. Yeah. And that was just for Victoria. Yeah. So, you know, between all of the other states, I mean, there was just constant. So... It's sort of, you know, I think that that's been a sad thing. It's been a hard thing. I mean, I know there's been a lot of difficulties, but it's sort of not a good thing that the relationship between Australia and China is not good. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't need to be preaching to the converted with you guys, I'm sure. No. Um, in 2002, you founded the uh, Shanghai Literary Festival at Glam and also the Capital Literary Festival a few mm, years later. Yeah, well, well we, we opened in... in Yes, in two thousand, it was actually two thousand and three. It was the year of SARS, and and our first literary festival. We've got to admit was um, one man talking about martinis, but that just happened to be Frank Morehouse. Okay, and it was actually Frank Morehouse doing the martini and literature talk, which he did. Yeah, which we thought was good fun, and he came and he did a he did the literary festival in in Hong Kong at the time. And so we decided this was a good idea and that we'd keep doing it. But, um, <clears throat> I mean, it was, it was an interesting time flying mm. up to um, Shanghai with Frank Morehouse who was um, um, apparently quite well known for being a bit of a hypochondriac. So, okay. I mean, he was, you know, on the plane with a mask. I mean, everybody was on the plane with a mask during SARS. Anyway, so that was the beginning of the literary festival. And then... On, you know, quickly on to Beijing. We opened Beijing in 2009, yeah. having started to look in 2002. Um, and, yeah, it was a challenge, Beijing. Yeah. And so I, I read somewhere that there was a seven-year negotiation process. Well, it wasn't negotiation. It was actually trying to find the right place. Okay. Um, and I actually, yeah, I mean, I think... 
in hindsight, would I do it all again in Beijing if I knew what was going to happen? I would say definitely not. Okay. Did you find the closest you got to the centre of Beijing, the more difficult it became? Well, I think I didn't realise that at the time. I think I was pretty stupid and naive, really. But um, I think that being on Tiananmen Square was sort of, you know, remarkable and difficult. When um, the government changed in 2012, I think there was a shift to um, more more control and also... Tiananmen Square was more and more closed off. So, you know, it was just even traffic patterns was hard to get to. And it was a building site and it's still a building site today. So, you know, I can't – in many ways I have to really defend the local government, the Dongcheng District government. They Mm. did really – they really tried to help us. Okay. But, you know, I mean, as the the vice mayor said to me, Michelle, we cannot change the traffic patterns for you. And it's like, I understand that, you know, in a city of 20 million people, no, you can't have the traffic patterns changed because it doesn't suit you. Yeah. So I think that was also a really interesting lesson in, you know, what works and why it works. And, you know, the bond everybody said wouldn't work because nobody went down there. But, of course, you went... And I'm, I was saying the first day I walked up on the top stair, I walked up the stairs in that building and went up to the seventh floor and it looked nothing like it is now. But of course there was just this sweep of the river and this sweep of the bund Mm. and it was, oh my God. Mm. So I think that one of the things about that was that nobody really, and this is very different now because nobody really had access to that feeling in Shanghai that you were standing above the city okay, yeah. in the late 90s. And now, of course, Shanghai is a city of 120-storey buildings. Everybody's looking down on it and the Bund is minute. It was not the case. The buildings were not as high and, you know, so there was this sort of master of the universe sort of feeling. Yeah. Whereas in Beijing, everybody said that even what can go wrong, you know, it's got the most rem- – it was a beautiful restaurant – and with the, if I say so myself, it was so beautiful. I didn't design it, you know, paid other people a lot of money to design it. Mm. And it was on Tiananmen Square. It looked at the gates. It was remarkable. It was truly remarkable. But it was the wrong place, the wrong time, the wrong location, definitely the wrong location. Yeah. You know, and everything was wrong about it. Yeah, but I think that actually Beijing was also... It's a difficult city to work in. It's not a commercial city and I think you have to sort of take... I don't think... I, I didn't understand that. You know, mm. it's it's a political city. Mm. Yeah. You know, so you're at the vagaries of politics and whether that whether that's going up or down or people... And, you know, in 2012, in fairness, and good on Xi Jinping for coming in and saying, that's it with all these super extravagant meals, you guys, spending half the country's coffers. Yeah. You know, that's it. There's three courses, one soup and no alcohol. And yeah. that was like, oh, my God, what are we all going to do? And, you know, I mean, everybody in the F&B industry was like, oh, God. Yeah. Well, I feel there's a, there's a real SOE feeling about Beijing yeah. where, where, where yeah. Shanghai yeah. responds to consumer needs and, and, and has more of a private... I think even though a lot of our clients... I mean, we didn't... I don't think we had a lot of government clients. Yeah. But even though, you know, we had a lot of private, you know, big, big companies, everybody sort of took that line... You okay. couldn't be seen to be extravagant if you, you know, you have to please the government in Beijing. Right. Yeah. So you better not be seen to be extravagant. So, okay. I mean, that sort of, and that made business much more difficult. Okay. You know, so it was pretty difficult anyway. Yeah. 
and and then it made it much more difficult. Um, one of your other initiatives is mentor walks. Um, yes. Would you be able to tell me what, like, what would the process yeah. of mentor walks Yeah, is? yeah, there's one tomorrow in Hong Kong. Mm. Um, I started mentor walks, I heard this idea and it was something that happened annually. Um, an American organisation called Vital Voices it was something they did and they did it in different places in the world. But the woman who – I heard a woman talk about it and she said she had so many people requesting her time that she said to her, you know, assistant, I'll meet – you know, they can have – people can have half an hour of my time and no more and I'll meet them in Central Park on Monday, Wednesday or Friday at 7.30 and they've got till 8 o'clock and tell them they better have their questions ready. Okay. <laughs> and so she was sitting on a panel and, t- and I thought that is just genius. Right. And – and it took me quite a long time. You know, I kept saying to friends and people, I really want to start this thing. I think it's a really good idea, but, you know, I really need some help to start it. And anyway, that, you know, it fell by the wayside. And at that point I was living between Hong Kong, Shanghai and Beijing. Okay. And then actually I was at the ambassador's um, house one day for lunch and she she'd pulled together a group of like 20 women from all different... Um, you know, local women, um, women from the Australian and Chinese and uh, New Zealand community, women who ran UNICEF, the one who ran the sort of chamber, you know, things like that. And um, she asked everybody for an idea and I was nearly jumping out of my seat (laughs) trying to get my idea. I was like, everybody, I've got the best idea you've ever heard. Everybody just listen to me. Um, and a couple of people there volunteered and said, okay, well, it's a great idea. Let's try and start it. So it took us about a year and a half to okay. get it going. That's seven years ago, yep. actually eight years ago now. Yep. Um, and we did start and it took us about another year to sort of get it – to work out mm. how, how it worked best. And then we started in Shanghai about five years – four or five years ago. Mm. And then it was started up in Australia um, – Two women, two friends um, were in Shanghai, came on a mental walk, mental walk and then started it up in Australia. And it's now operating. I was talking to Bobby last night, Bobby Marlab and Adina Jacobs. And it actually has government funding and it's now, I think, in eight cities. Okay. So it's great. Yeah, it's really good. So the idea basically is that mental, we have a bank of mentors. You turn up, mentees sign up. You pair up and you go off and you have a talk for an hour and, you know, there's no obligation to go any further. Have you also made an effort to target that towards, like, local Chinese yeah. women? Well, we, it's interesting. You know, we thought in the beginning, how are we going to make this sort of for local Chinese women and not encourage all of the foreigners? Mm. That sort of sorted itself out. Mm. It's a real mix of okay. people. It's great, actually. It's fantastic. And everybody – I mean, all the mentors love it, mentors yeah. who do it, because yeah. it's one hour, it's done, ticked. Yeah. Yeah. You've done it, it's finished. Yeah. You know, people are happy to help other people. Um, and for the mentees, I think it's – what's really good about it, and I've done it now, you know, every month, I've done hundreds of these walks – and often we walk in groups of like three or four, so I have one mentor or two mentors and three mentees or four mentees. Or, and or sometimes you just, you know, one-on-one. But what's really good about it is that you've got one hour. In a group, people help each other. I often say, what would you do? Mm. 
to young women talking about completely different things. They don't know. They actually get a new network of people they don't know anything about. Often one of them will know something about marketing and one of them will know something about you know, okay. something yep. else. Yep. And that's the end of the commitment for you. So actually you're really honest. Okay. You know, if you think it's a crap idea, you're yep. just like, no, that's a really crap idea. Do you, do you find that in um, Chinese female communities there's similar support networks? There is beginning to be. I mean, this whole, you know, Chinese society is very much structured around families and units. And when it, where it wasn't, you know, the government made sure it was. But that's really breaking down. Mm, okay. You know, I think one of the things that we would really like to do, I mean, tons of people in our mentors speak Chinese, whether they are Chinese or Westerners, plenty of them. Yeah. And we have... I think we worked out on our mentor bank in Shanghai. I think we have sort of 17 languages of mentors. Right. You know, so people can, you know, manage quite a few languages. Yeah, great. Um, but we very rarely get young Chinese women who don't speak any English. Okay, right. You know, or might just speak a bit. Okay. Yeah, and I think that's something that we'd sort of quite like to... I think hopefully it's something that naturally happens because I had a young woman last month at the beginning of this month, and I said to her, how did you know about it? She said, I can't remember. She said, can you give me – I can't remember how I found it. I found it on some group and I don't even know how I found it. I went back and looked. How did I find it? I couldn't figure it out. Okay. So I think it – you know, things like that grow organically. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's great. I think it's really good. And I've actually just – we're in the middle of writing up a, a toolkit and I've got people waiting for it in Saudi Arabia – Nepal, well, Saudi Arabia, Hawaii, two women in Saudi Arabia, mm. Hawaii, KL, all saying, please, can you send us a toolkit? So we've actually written it up for Shanghai because we're eight organisations in Shanghai. So Ostcham, Amcham, Britcham, us, Am on the Bond, uh, IPWS, which is a, a women's, um, professional women's network, yep. um, and a couple of others now, Cham, Canadians... Uh, the uh, French and Benelux, Benjamin, okay. which is okay. yeah. So it's sort of quite a few chambers. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it's great, you know. So, but we all take turns, whereas others we're trying to write it up that if you were running it yourself. And I get quite a lot of men who say, "Oh, could you come and set it up for us?" And I'm like, oh. "I'll send you the toolkit. Set yeah. it up yourself, boys." <laughs> And like, no, you're not welcome. Right. We actually, a couple of times we've had young guys turn up. Okay. Like, it's not for you. <laughs> well, I think the problem is that women behave differently when there are men around. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, you suddenly find the girl saying, oh, it's okay. I, you know, you let him ask the questions. Right, yeah. It's like, girls, come on. So, yeah. I, you know, I think it's. I wish somebody would start it for guys because I think a lot of guys would be do really well mm. to just have that trusting situation. It's sort of a Chatham House rules. You don't repeat things. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure people probably do, but we try to make people respect, say, you know, anything you tell me I'm not going to tell anybody else. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you don't sort of share your state secrets. Michelle, you have countless milestones and achievements all across China. Is there anything left to do? <laughs> Rest. No. Okay. <laughs> no. Um, working with Advance. Actually, I'm on the global board of Advance. I was the first Asia director of Advance. I found that there was a lot of work to do. I think that, that there's a lot of talk about Australia. 
coming into Asia yep. and, you know, pivot to Asia and impact in Asia. Yep, yep. But there's sort of in many ways, and this is not at all to um, <clears throat> demean any work that anybody is doing. You know, the chambers and, and the consulates and Austrade and Australia-China Business Council and all those sorts of organisations are absolutely essential. Mm. But I feel that there's still a place in Australia where Asia sort of gets a shoved on a back burner and you know I just it, it's like guys this is it this is our future you know we have to learn how to how to live and work with the people in our region and you know we might not like everything that everybody does yeah but we have to learn to manage it and just you know there's a lot of grounds for um differences but just to push it on, you know, further onto the back burner, I think, is a disaster. Yeah, so, so do you think that requires more Asia literacy and language learning or, or more time Australians actually spending and, and living over here in Asia? Well, I think, I mean, the, the fact is that the biggest uh, population is in Hong Kong. It's 105,000 yeah, yeah, Asian it's, Australians. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's sort of Australians and many of them are Hong Kong yeah. nationality or Asian passport holders. Mm. But there, it's a really big population. But I think that actually what it needs is a better understanding in Australia and especially from a government point of view. Mm. You know, I think that there has been an absolute stick your head in the sand and all this sort of, you know, moving towards, you know, more in the US and, you know, it's, it, of course it's important. It goes without saying. But I think that there needs to be... <clears throat> <clears throat> better understanding of Asia. I think there needs to be a better understanding of languages. I mean, when I was at school, you could do Japanese. And actually, when my younger sister was at school, you could do Indonesian. Mm. I mean, I don't even think you can do Mandarin in most schools. And, I mean, come on. You know, yeah. what does anybody in Australia need to learn Spanish for? Mm. Yeah. Really? Or French? You know, I mean, it's lovely that you speak French. I mean, that, you know, but it, but, and I know Spanish is an enormously important language, but the most important language that languages that we have around us are, you know, basically Indonesian and Mandarin. Yeah. I mean, Chinese characters are not easy. Mm. And many Chinese people now, their their written ability is just not great mm. because everybody works on a keyboard. Yeah. Oh. But, you know, that doesn't mean that your Chinese... ..you can't learn Chinese to a high standard. Mm. I'll take you characters know. over tones any day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's true. Um, Tones, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Michelle. And That's my all, pleasure. All the best my in the pleasure. future. Thank you very much. Thanks, James. My sincere thanks to Michelle for sharing her fascinating journey and extensive culinary footprint throughout China's dining scene. When you're next in China, please make sure you drop by to M on the Bund for the best views of Shanghai over a cocktail and enjoy some of Michelle's signature pavlova dish. To learn more about Michelle's initiatives from her M restaurants to advance to mentor walks and more, please drop by to the podcast homepage at acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts where you can find links to our previous episodes. There you can also find 2019's winners of the Advance Awards ahead of the Advance Gala Dinner in Sydney on October 17, and also an advance report on how expats returning from overseas can give corporate Australia firms a competitive edge. If you've been enjoying our podcast series, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And should you have a friend, colleague or client with an interest in China, please let them know about the podcast. That's it for this episode. Until next time, 
再见。